youngest to oldest, I pray that you would help us to grow. Yeah, this is not about us. This is not about us being here to perform. This is not about being entertained. This is about you and your glory. It is about worshiping you in the beauty of your holiness. And so I pray today, God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth as we study your precious word. God, I pray that you please help us to walk out these doors differently than we walked in because you're growing us. So we are in John 21, but before we even get there, a couple questions start that have to do with the word that's in the center of this screen. Well, so maybe we're going to look at this screen more today. That one's a little blurry. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> but we'll look at this one more this week. What about the word right in the middle? Failure. Have you ever felt like that? An absolute big zero. I mean, you have to look up to see bottom. I mean, you all know what I'm talking about, where when you come to the end of your day, sometimes you just put your head against the wall and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> Jason, maybe this is every day. It's a personal testimony from Jason over here. I'm not necessarily talking just about mistakes. I'm not just talking about, you know, errant information put in the computer at work or um, something like a failed test or in sports. I'm not talking about striking out or, you know, missing the, the two free throws in the 30, last 30 seconds of the game. Those are mistakes. Those things happen. What I am talking about, and probably all of us can identify at some point with this, is when there's a choice in our life to do what we know God wants us to do. And we make the alternate choice. We're talking about the fact that through temptation we cave in. We, we enter into the scene and we're like, God, I'm going to serve you with all I've got. Today is your day. And then the temptation comes. And, and you know what I'm talking about. The temptation comes and you, and you made a ne another regret, regretful choice morally. Again. You fell back off the wagon again. You let your anger get the best of you again. You lied to another family member again. You started using again. You went back to those sites on the computer again. Maybe as soon as I'm saying this, in your heart, there's this deep knot, your stomach maybe. So we're not talking about the heart right now. Let's go down to the stomach. You know what I'm talking about. When I mention these things, there's this gut-wrenching knot that's in your stomach. You're like, oh, I go back to a time in my life, and I know I failed big time. I botched it. I bonked. <laughs> I messed up. Right away when I say that, sometimes, sometimes we run back to this time in our life. And the crazy thing is, we acknowledge God's grace. That's why we meet here today, is God's grace. A couple weeks ago, we talked about God's grace. God's grace is enough to save us, and God's grace is enough to sustain us for every step along the way. We know that cerebrally. We understand that. We study it theologically, but practically, in our minds, when we talk of, of this, of this failure, we go back to times in our lives where Satan kind of dangles this failure in front of your face. You know what I'm talking about? And you start thinking, God, I want to serve you, but... And Satan's like, yeah, look at this. Remember this time? 
Remember that choice? In our spiritual lives, we've fallen hard. We've, we've flat out failed in our relationship to God. When it comes to a choice to make, as, as, as much as we want to make the right choice, there's times when the temptation grabs us, and because of our self-dependence, we fall into this trap of Satan. James talks of this. <coughs> How do you feel when you think on these things? Awful. We feel awful. That gut knot is real. We think sometimes, how could I ever do anything productive for the Lord again? And maybe you kind of tamper with some ministry stuff and you kind of step into, yeah, I can serve this way. And as soon as you start serving, God brings back to mind those failures in your life. How do you deal with that? You feel that awful sense of failure. Well, if that has ever been you, and I certainly know it's been me, then we're in good company in John 21. The passage we're looking at today is about the lowest you can get in the life of the Apostle Peter. He bonked big time, he failed. Today we're going to look at John 21 and we're going to see a massive amount of information about God's sustaining grace. We mentioned this just briefly yesterday at the memorial service. John, <clears throat> written by an apostle of Jesus Christ around 90, 80, 80 to 90 AD. This apostle had seen three different generations go. A lot of his friends have died. Uh, this apostle, if you think about what John's doing in the scriptures, he writes in John 20, 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's why John is writing this. Think about this practically. Who is John written to? Who has he seen come and go? There was an initial generation of people that saw Jesus Christ. They experienced Jesus Christ. They saw the miracles. They knew it because they had seen it. That generation had come and gone. Now we have a second generation of people. Maybe as little critters, they saw Jesus. They experienced the feeding of the 5,000. They watched it. They heard their parents talk about Jesus. <coughs> but even in this... As the years went by, this generation experienced something dramatic. So Jesus had promised a kingdom would come, did he not? Jesus had promised amazing things would happen. What happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD? Flattened. This is a group of people who saw their whole life devastated. And as Jewish Christians, they were spread all over the known world. These are people that are looking and saying, you know, we saw Jesus when we were three and four-year-olds. We, we heard a little bit about him. Our parents taught us about him. But is this, is this real? And then think about the third generation who John is now writing to. We're talking about the later first century A.D. Who is he writing to? People whose grandparents saw Jesus, whose parents maybe knew Jesus as a little one, but now they're just hearing the stories. 
They might read or interact with an epistle that's passed around to the churches. They read portions of the Gospels because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are circulating, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke are circulating. And now John is writing to a group of people. And he's saying, listen, it's true. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is real. And actually, if you go to 1 John, if you read just the first couple verses of 1 John, we're not going to do this right now. How does John write this? He says, I know because my hands have touched Jesus. My eyes have seen Jesus. My ears have heard Jesus. And I'm telling you, this Jesus is real. So, John, writing John 21, later on in his life, and actually as you read through the book of John, you come to the end of John, John 20, 31, and you're like, John 20, done. Awesome book. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Great, let's sign off on the book of John and done. But then we have this beautiful chapter, John 21 intentionally set by the Spirit in this holy text of Scripture. And why? Well, it's because of what we're talking about today. Grace through failure. One of the key people in all of what God's done through the entire ministry of Jesus Christ is a man by the name of Peter. Simon Peter. Peter, son of John, as he was known initially. Peter, son of John, Jesus giving him the name Simon Peter. This Peter, who you find all over the story, after the resurrection, he, he's kind of he's in the background. He's kind of hidden. This Simon Peter, who claimed, and we're going to see this in just a minute, we're going to go through the, the life of Peter. <coughs> By the way, I'm going to apologize right up front. I've been uh, on, the, on the cusps of a little bit of a cough, and it got me yesterday. <laughs> and so we actually, I've, I've, I've designed the sermon to be a little bit of an accordion, so we might cut off halfway through the sermon today, because you're probably thinking, these notes, we're not even in the notes yet. And he's going strong. So I, I just want you to know that we may continue this sermon next week, all right? So no panic, all right? Um, no need to pull out the pillows and start sleeping quite yet. Uh, we're going to potentially continue this on next week, but I, I apologize for the cough that will come periodically through the sermon this morning. But at any rate, this John writes of Peter, Peter who's now absent after the resurrection and kind of in the background, but he's still a leader of these disciples. This Peter who feels a lot like this guy. What did I just do? How could I have done that? And as we go through John 21, we see this beautiful theme. If you would advance to slide one. Here's the theme. God's sustaining grace both supersedes failures and at the same time empowers faithfulness. <coughs> God's sustaining grace both supersedes failures and empowers faithfulness. What are we talking about grace? 
If I could just highlight that word again. A couple weeks ago, we tried to clearly define grace as setting a foundation for what we talk about here. When we talk about grace, we're talking about a gift. Remember this. It is something that in no way we deserved. It's completely undeserved, and the beauty of grace is you cannot in any way earn it. As hard as you try, you cannot earn this grace. This grace is a gift from an almighty God seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This grace, and I love this grace, it is good. This gift is good. And it's good for favor before God. It's good for new life in Christ. And the last one we talked about a couple weeks ago is, it's good to empower the rest of our lives in Christ. So if you think of it this way, when I was younger, I, I grew up memorizing a, a, a definition for grace. It's the energizing power, the supernatural desire and energizing power to do the will of God. And I would like to say it is the supernatural desire and energizing power to accomplish God's plan. God is giving me the energy to do what he wants me to do. This is grace. Grace starts at justification. Actually, it, grace is seen in God bringing us to justification. Grace is seen in new life in Christ. It is seen in sustained life in Christ, which we're talking about right now. And grace is seen in ministry for Christ. That is the New Testament grace that we find. Well, we're talking a lot about sustaining grace as it supersedes failures. Today I want to look at this failure in the life of the Apostle Peter, written by the Apostle John. So what we're going to do today is this. We're going to start by realizing that it's not what I can do for God. It is what God can do through me. That is what we're talking about today. And how we're going to see that is snapshots of the Apostle Peter. Can we take a couple minutes, and it's going to be like a massive 30,000 foot view over the life of Peter. And what we're going to do is just take different snapshots of the Apostle Peter's life. And I'm going to grab one of these tissues. I'm sorry, this is distracting. All right, so let's start on these snapshots of the Apostle Peter. First of all, what do we know of Peter? Peter was a chosen what? All right, he's a chosen disciple. What did he do before he was a disciple? I mean, this guy was a hardcore fisherman. Where do we find that? In the book of Matthew, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just reference these. Matthew chapter 4, here's the account from Matthew. It says this, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, and this is a massive statement, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Please take note, whether you circle that or you take note in your mind, that those two words, follow me, those are huge, that's a huge statement in the life of Apostle Peter. Jesus says to him, from the onset, follow me, Peter, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So what's the setting here? Well, where was Peter raised? Okay, so he was a North Shore dude. <laughs> Not like Hawaii, but he was the North Shore of Galilee. Capernaum. What did he do? This guy was a hardcore fisherman, by the way. Who was his brother? A guy with a really, really cool name. 
Oh boy. Maybe not everybody thinks it's a really cool name. I do anyways. All right. An awesome name, Andrew. Okay, his brother's Andrew. has nothing to do with the story other than I think it's a cool name. But anyways, what's Peter's occupation? He's a fisherman. What do we know of these fishermen? I mean, these guys are rough guys. They're tough workers. I mean, these are the kind of guys that pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps or sandal straps, however you want to say it. These guys, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's Peter. This is the get-or-done type of a guy. And, and as you follow the life of the apostle Peter, his whole life was surrounded with, with what can I do for Jesus? What effort can I put in here to prove how awesome I am? That's Peter. Peter was consumed with his own abilities. Get her done. This was Peter. He followed Jesus as a bit of a, a rocky start at the beginning, but then for three years he followed Jesus. And we get glimpses into the motivation, Peter's motivations through the scriptures. His motivations primarily sometimes were to see himself set up in Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom would be set up, but what role am I going to play in this kingdom, Jesus? This is Peter. Peter, who Jesus spent time with. And I'm going to tell you, this dude was messed up. <laughs> he was ambitious. He had a ton of potential. He was certainly a diamond in the rough, this Peter. Well, we step back from this little snapshot when Jesus called him in Matthew chapter 4. Let's skip ahead two and a half years, okay? A lot went on in these two and a half years in the Gospels. Let's skip ahead to Jesus' ministry in Matthew 14, and we find a tested follower. All right, so these tests are coming along the way where Jesus is training his disciples. Are you really going to follow me? Are you really going to be all about me and my kingdom? And here we find a test. Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 just finishes. It's an amazing miracle. Sometimes you read through these and you kind of think of them like a, a Disney movie, like, oh, that was kind of cool. We go back and we're like, no, that really happened. Jesus really fed 5,000 men and children and wives as well, women and children as well. 5,000 plus. We're talking close to 10,000 plus people. Jesus really fed these people. This really happened. And Peter is watching all of this. Now we find a little bit of a test going on because Jesus, the perfect God-man, struggling with the real deal issues of life, struggles with fatigue and burden. Jesus goes up into a high mountain apart to pray because he knows what's coming. And what does he do with the disciples? He says, you go meet me on the other side. Jesus knew what was coming. Go on the other side of Galilee. What happened while they were in, on Galilee? The storms came, right? They're in this little fishing boat. Peter, with all of his strength, all of his gusto, whatever I can muster up, he can't fight against God's creation, the storm. This is a massive lesson for this man. As hard as you try to fight it, you cannot. You're, you're a, a man who spent all of his life on the sea, and the sea is about to take your life. Jesus praying, remember the story? And I honestly believe he observed the whole storm coming in. He observed all of this happening. He saw what was going on with the disciples. Maybe even he could see the boat out on Galilee and see them struggling for their lives. And Jesus waited. He waited. He waited as they were being tested. 
Now Jesus walks out on the water. You remember this account in Matthew chapter 14? And what does Peter say? Peter, the one who, you know, act first, think later, that kind of guy, speak first, then analyze what you said later, stick your foot in your mouth a lot. This is Peter, all right? Peter sees this thing. They don't know if it's a ghost, and they're all freaked out. And then this thing is coming to them. This person is coming to him, and what does Peter say? Here's what he says. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And I want to stop right there and say, probably as the words are coming out of Peter's mouth, he's like, what did I just say? Command that I come to you on the water? Really? Jesus said, okay, well, come. Come to me, Peter. So Peter got out of the boat. And he walked on the water and came to Jesus. Just let that sink in for a second. This is a human being. This strong, gruff guy. I'm talking, you know, he had to be somewhere around, you know, potentially in, in that culture with these sized people. 150 to 250 pounds. This guy is walking on water. This is not the natural way of man. It's a miracle from God. And what happens? Peter whose eyes for a fixed second are on Jesus, turned back around to himself. Because that's the struggle with Peter his whole life. Is what is my strength? What is my ability? What can I do? Peter looks back at himself and what happens? Immediately, gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. That's the life of Peter. But when, the, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Can you just imagine this picture? This big burly dude sinking. And he's crying out like, like a little baby. Jesus, save me. And Jesus immediately just reaches out his hand and picks him up. And a lot of times in our, in our minds, we don't, under, we don't see this part of the story. But how did Jesus get back to the boat? I'm going to tell you. I believe he held Jesus. Peter's hand and just walked back on the water right to the boat and just stepped into the boat. Wow! Uh, and, and just a quick snapshot later on in Peter's life, he writes this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in 1 Peter 5. This is this Peter. Let's take another snapshot. <laughs> This is a foundational conversation that, that Jesus has with Peter a couple passages later. And by the way, these snapshots, if you, if you want to spend more time in the life of Peter, it's, it's amazing to see all of what Peter does, his whole character sketch. But Peter, Matthew chapter 16, we have this crazy conversation going on. And Peter affirms that Jesus truly is the Son of God. You're Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you know what, only my Father could have revealed that to you, Peter. But the very next statements, if you would listen as I read this foundational conversation, Matthew 16, Jesus says this to Peter. He promises something amazing to Peter. He says this, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter. And there's a play on words here because the word Peter is the word Petros. It means little stone. That's the translation of this word. You are the little stone, Peter. Peter, you are Peter. You're the little one. And then he uses another word. He says this. 
And on this rock, that word rock is the word petra, which means boulder, this foundational boulder. He says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is going on here? Jesus is promising Peter something amazing, and we gotta, we got to put this back in our minds when we think about the story of Peter. Because what Jesus is doing is promising him that even though he's a failure, even though he's a struggling guy, even though he's a kind of a messed up fisherman dude, God is going to do something amazing through him. I love this because this is grace. This is what God does in every single one of our lives. Even though we're messed up people, God does things amazing in our lives. And that's what's happening here. Jesus promises Peter, and he tells Peter, Peter, let me remind you something. You're like the little, the little tiny rock over here, but I'm still going to use you. And I can imagine Peter kind of thinking, oh, great, you had to bring that up, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I know that's my name, Peter, little rock. And then Jesus says, yeah, but on this foundational rock. And, and what is the whole statement? There's a lot to this discussion. We'll talk about it another time. But what he's saying is, you're a little rock, Peter, and you're going to be preaching big rock theology. You're going to be talking about me and my kingdom. And you're going to be seeing this kingdom, the church of God. You're going to see the church of God come into play. What are we talking about? What happens at Pentecost? Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to Christ. Do you remember this story? You, you are going to see something amazing come into play, Peter. You are going to be used by God. That's the point. So in this snapshot, in Matthew chapter 16, God is, Jesus is promising Peter something awesome in ministry. Okay, can we step back from that snapshot and take another snapshot. Where's this snapshot? This snapshot is in Matthew 26, John 13, just after Jesus washes the disciples' feet. What do we find? We find here an amazing account of Simon Peter proving in words how significant he is. Think of me. Think with me on this. Peter's whole life is to prove how awesome he is to Jesus and the other disciples. How capable he is to step up with Jesus and lead this kingdom. That's Peter. Well, what, is, what happens in uh, the upper room? Jesus washes their feet. And then actually you find Jesus and the disciples exiting from the upper room, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before. They're headed up to the Mount of Olives. And where do we what do we find Peter saying? Peter says this, Lord where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Make it happen for me. I can do this. And here's what he says. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And I want a snapshot of this, a real snapshot of this when I get to heaven. Because Jesus, I, I, I honestly believe Jesus kind of shook his head a little bit and he just says, will you, will you lay down your life for me? Will you really do that, Peter? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Not just once, but Peter, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. What do you think that did to Peter? This major gusto fella who's all about himself saying, yeah, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. I can imagine this guy stepping back and saying, yeah, right. I'm going to deny you three times. No, I'm going to see this happen, God. Jesus, who I told you, you are the son of God. Jesus, the son of God, I'm going to see this through. You just try me. It's scary stuff. Let's step back from this and let's take another snapshot of the life of Peter. What happens when, when they're in the Mount of Olives and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying? Remember, pouring out his heart and praying, sweating as it were great drops of blood, Jesus, and going to his disciples and saying, Man, could you not just pray with me? Because what are they doing? Put Z's all over the scenario here. They're sleeping hard. They're catching up on the missed sleep from walking all over with Jesus. And Jesus comes and says, hey, can you not pray with me for an hour? And then what happens? In the background, you can hear a group coming. And Jesus goes and wakes up the disciples and says, hey, the time is here. Peter stands up. You're probably rubbing his eyes. You know how it is when you wake up in the middle of the night. You can't quite see straight. Maybe he was woken up in the middle of the second sleep cycle, you know, the 90-minute sleep cycle thing. I don't know. But he's just maybe a bit groggy. And he stands up. And he hears the people coming. Then he sees a familiar face. He sees Judas come. And I can imagine Peter is just about to go tear Judas's hair out. He sees him give a kiss to Jesus and say, this is the one. Oh, now this is time for Peter to prove himself. This is the time to step it up. To the point where we find in the text that he had packed. He packed a sword. He takes his sword, and what does he do with this sword? I mean, it's, it's clear in the passage. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it. I mean, we don't have any account of, of all the other disciples. I can imagine maybe Simon Zelotes doing something like this. But Simon Peter, packing a sword with him, maybe hiding it, and he pulls this thing out ready to go to war for Jesus. And what did he do? Remember Malchus, the high priest's servant? He chops his ear. <laughs> he goes to kill this dude, and he chops his ear instead. First of all, massive failure for a fisherman. He missed the mark. He's trying to chop this guy's head off, and he gets his ear instead. <laughs> all right, fail. This guy's screaming, yelling, has his hand over his ear, and what does Jesus do? Calmly, he steps into this scene, and like a parent telling kids, no more of this. Actually, some of your translations will say this, no more of this. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, no more of this. And he grabs the ear and he puts it back on. How would you feel if you were Peter? Well, Jesus, I didn't deny you. You told me I'd deny you. I stepped up with my sword to defend you. And Jesus looks at him. And, and I think in this moment, Peter's starting to realize that it's not about me and my strength. It's about the plan of Almighty God. And what does Peter do? In embarrassment, he runs. That's this Peter. He takes off. And Peter, as a natural leader of the other disciples, if you follow me through this story, Peter, as a natural leader of the other disciples, they're following with him. They're looking around saying, Peter's out of here. We're out of here. So what do we find? We have a 
aggressive defender who, who tried to prove how significant he was to Jesus, how supporting of a man he was to Jesus on his own strength. I'm going to start a battle for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, none of that here. This isn't my way. Can we continue on with, with two other snapshots? We find a snapshot in John 18. Here's the snapshot. Jesus is on trial before the Jewish leaders in the middle of the night. Completely illegal, if you remember your history, the Jews, and, and, and all this time through the Passover. Completely illegal what they're doing. They're meeting. They're incriminating Jesus. And in the background, you find this guy who he's embarrassed. He ran, but he's like, I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to defend Jesus. At this point in the story, I wonder if he is carrying his sword again. I don't know. We don't find that indication in the scriptures. But he sneaks into the courtyard. He tries to get into the house. And what happens in this next snapshot? Well, can we read it? After this, oh, sorry, Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Actually, I'm just going to tell you what happens. You know what happens. He denies Christ three times. He denies Christ. If you can picture this in your mind, he denies Christ to a servant girl. This is how low Peter's coming. And I can imagine uh, as Peter, this is coming out of Peter's mouth. He's like, I've denied Christ. I did it, but I only did it once. And actually in the background, you do find, as you walk through the scriptures, you do find the cock crowing, the rooster crowing once. And then he's like, oh boy, but I haven't done it three times. And then within this segment of time, in this snapshot, two other times, Peter denies that he even knew Jesus Christ. And what do you hear? Hear the same thing that I heard at uh, 3.30 two nights ago and at 5.30 this morning. <laughs> the rooster waking me up right? He hears the crow, and what happens immediately? This guy, Peter, he wants to go rip the head off of this rooster. I can't believe I did it, and actually in the story we find he goes, and he is broken. I'm going to tell you, that's exactly where God wanted him, a broken man, because so often we want to do things on our own strength. We want to make it happen. I'm going to serve you, Jesus. And then what happens when you turn on your computer and go to that site that you told God you would never go to again? What happens when you lose it with your kids, when you promise to them that you would never lose it again with them and your wife? What happens? God is bringing us to the end of ourselves. God is breaking us and helping us to realize that it is only His grace. And I think... I think the, the key point of this whole snapshot is what happens in Luke 22, verse 61. Listen to me, uh, listen to this verse. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. So in this courtyard, somehow, he spots, Peter spots Jesus, and Jesus spots Peter and looks at him. Jesus doesn't say a word, but he looks at him. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, 
how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. What, a, what an amazing expression from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that when all the busyness of this whole courtyard, he knew that his brother, he knew that his disciple, Peter, he knew that this man was struggling, and in all of this happenings of the courtyard, he picked him out and looked at him in the eyes. I want to see a replay of that look. A look of compassion, maybe a bit of, I told you so. But a look to him saying, Peter, I know I told you Satan desires to sift you like wheat, and it's happening. Don't give up. So we continue on in this snapshot, and we come now to the passage that's on your lap that's been on there for 30 minutes. John 21 which I can already tell you right now, we're not going to be in this chapter very long today. <laughs> we're going to continue this on next week. But what happens in John 21, what you find is not just a little bit of a depressed fella, not a guy that's like, oh man, I missed the free throws in the last 30 seconds. We're talking about a guy who is in absolute discouragement. This is the lowest of the low. And where do we find John uh, Peter, John's expression of Peter, in verse 1 of John 21. Would you follow along as I read this? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. And by the way, just a, just a preface to that. There's, there's so much other stuff that has gone on since this. Jesus showing up to the men in that room. You remember that with Philip? Without Philip, then with Philip. You remember the story with, with Thomas, I should say. He's revealed himself along the way a couple different times, even to Peter. We're seeing this. But then Jesus has told his disciples to go wait for me in the mountain in Galilee. Where do they go? They go to the sea. And I, I don't want to read too much into that, but what's happening here is Peter, I believe, is leading the other disciples in a way of disobedience. This natural leader, Peter, who's doubted, who's bonked hard. He's failed. And what is he doing? He's leading the other disciples away from the original intention that God had for them. So let's read verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, <laughs> I love this, and two other of the disciples. How would you like to be a, those other two disciples, by the way? <laughs> I mean, we got amazing details in the scripture about all of this account, and it's all of a sudden like, oh, and two other dudes. <laughs> all right. Man, that was my chance to be in the Bible, and I'm the other dude. <laughs> all right. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. I mean, I just have to chuckle. Because these big, burly, do-it-yourselves, pull-ourselves-up-by-our-own-bootstraps kind of guys, we're going fishing. And what is said in this statement, we're going fishing? It's not like, hey guys, I'm kind of bored. I need something to do for a hobby. So let's go, you know, take a couple casts and let's, you know, eat up some time while we're waiting for Jesus. No, I think, honestly, they very possibly had waited for Jesus for possibly even a couple weeks. I don't know exactly the timing on here. Anywhere from eight days to 40 days they had waited for Jesus. I want to think that it's probably closer to like two weeks. Jesus said, go to Galilee, and Peter's, the whole two weeks, Peter's thinking through, I failed, I failed, I failed, I failed. Finally, after struggling with this enough, he said, guys, 
guess what? I'm going fishing. And it wasn't like I'm going to find something to do tonight. It's I'm going fishing for my livelihood. We know in the scriptures that Peter had a wife. We know he had a, a, a family. So he's going now. He's saying, I need to go provide for my family, guys. This is going to be my livelihood. I'm going fishing. And what does he do? He draws these other guys with him. So now in the Sea of Galilee, we have a group of men who have been led to disobey Jesus, if you think of it that way. Disobey the master. And who's their ringleader? One who's shaking his head the whole time, especially because they didn't catch any fish. (laughs) The whole night they didn't catch any fish. I want us to get quickly a picture of what we'll talk about next week. Because next week we're going to continue this theme as we laid the foundation of Peter's life today. Next week we're going to see that God's grace supersedes failure in this beautiful passage of John 21. And here's what happens. If you would just read with me verses 4 to 8. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children! Do you have any fish? Okay, I just want to time out. Picture this with me, would you? These big burly dudes out there, and Jesus is hollering in the morning. You know how it's like in the morning. You can hear everything around the lake. And he's like, hey, children. (laughs) Not like men. Hey, guys. Hey, big dudes. He's like, hey, little kids. I mean, we joke about that around our house sometimes, right? Um, But it's like, hey, little children, did you catch anything? What do you you think the interaction went on the boat before one of them said no? Who is this crazy guy asking us? This crazy person telling us we're children. And this fits right in the theme of the entire story. That God is not so much interested in how big we are. How grand we think we are. How strong we are. God is interested in broken people that are consumed with his sustaining grace who find their sufficiency in the joy of serving Jesus Christ for their whole lives. God uses broken people. I want to go to, uh, just read the last part of this and we'll talk more of it next week. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They said to him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. We'll comment on that next week. So they cast it and none of them were able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's actually writing this, it's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, here he goes again. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Who does that? You're a hundred yards from the shore. I mean, maybe just kind of get the boat over there. In my mind, I picture Peter swimming with all he's got and the boat kind of creeping up next to him like, dude, how you doing down there? The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. What do we have here? We'll talk more about this next week. We have the fact that God's amazing grace supersedes our failure. And here's the point. God still wants you. We're going to talk about this apparently over the next two or three weeks. 
we're going to talk about the fact that in ministry sometimes it's easy to look back at failures in our lives, to look back at discouragements, to look back at times when we bonked hard and to say, God can never use me again. I want to say, according to God's mercy and God's grace and, he, and his kindness, he wants you. However, he doesn't want you for the sake of you. He wants you for the sake of his eternal glory. And so, God, this morning, we thank you for the life of the Apostle Peter. We thank you for the fact that in this man, we see ourselves. We see a real man struggling with real stuff, real issues, stuff we struggle with every single day, where we're so big in our own minds. God, it's so easy to slide into this, this view that we think we're sufficient. We're sufficient for whatever comes at this, us at this day. We're sufficient even to, to proclaim the good news in such a powerful way. We're sufficient to do the things of the ministry. Yet in all of these things, you're constantly showing us through the scripture that it is not all about us. It's all about you, Jesus. And you're calling us back to the heart of this worship. God, I pray that you please continue to remind us at Cross Point Community Church that it's not all about us, but that you use broken things. You joy in using broken things. That through the scriptures, you're very clear about, of how insufficient everyone is, except for one, the sufficient Jesus. And I pray, God, that that would come to our minds often. 